It's been said that more than any other topic in all of the Buddha's teachings is the Buddha's speaking on the topic of right effort or balanced effort. More than Nibbana, more than Jhana, more than Vipassana, he talk about right effort. And that points to me to the difficulty it is in establishing a right relationship to effort or energy in our practice. And in all my years of hearing the teachings and practicing myself and the readings that I have done, there seems to be some conclusions uh, that I and others are able to draw from all of this talk about right effort. And the first is that most everyone struggles to find a place of balance in right effort. However, secondly, the imbalances create the most colorful stories. (laughs) And the third conclusion is that there's no consensus on what right effort is. So, we are left with having to find our own way. Having to find, really, what is balanced effort. What is the balance for us, given our conditions right now? And so, we can hear stories of... uh, famous Zen monks and monks or nuns at the time of the Buddha or even our own teachers and we think, my God, I I can't do that. And sure enough, you can't. That was theirs. That was their experience of wrong effort or balanced effort. And you'll find your own. And uh, in time, I'm sure you'll be able to tell the horror stories of your wrong effort and entertain people. (laughs) I got a good lesson in right effort when I first uh, met Kamala and came to uh, Maui to take up residence together. And Kamala's daughter was then 13, Therese. And she was just going into high school, I guess. And she went out for the track team. And being, um, wanting to be a good parent, um, I said, well, let us know when your first track meet is and we'll come. And so she told us when the first track meet was. And, uh, you know, it starts at 4 o'clock or something in the afternoon. So we went, got there early walked up into the bleachers, cement bleachers. So we sat down. And we, you know how the first meet of the season goes. It's very unorganized, and it's pretty chaotic, and you have a hard time following just exactly what's happening. Well, we sat there, and then we finally located Therese on the field doing her warm-ups and running and jumping and doing things like that. And we sat there. And we saw a few people that we know and talked to them a little bit and uh, started shifting around in our seat because the cement bleachers were so hard. And uh, an hour went by and uh, they'd gotten started on some of the events and nothing that Therese was in yet. And um, so we talked to Therese, we called her over to the fence, we said, oh, hey, how's it going? And, oh boy, okay. And we noticed that even though she wasn't competing at the time, you know, she was practicing, she would always look to us every five minutes or so to see if we were paying attention. And so we noticed this, so we had to pay attention. (laughs) (laughs) We were interested. We wanted to be interested, but 
Cement bleachers are hard. <laughs> and so, so um, you know, 5 o'clock came and went, and 5.30 came and went, and uh, 6 o'clock came. And, uh, gee, we've been there for two hours, and Teresa's still doing her warm-ups and prancing around <laughs> on the field and looking at us every five minutes, and we're, yeah, okay, we're paying attention. <laughs> we're just paying attention, being very patient and uh, persevering. And uh, 6.30 came and went, and 7 o'clock came and went. Now it's been three hours past our dinner time, and uh, we canceled everything else we thought we were going to do that evening, and we were still waiting. 7.30 came and went. They said, oh, that's the end of the meet. <laughs> and we said, well, well Therese, what's happening? Where, when are you going to do your thing? And she said, uh, I don't know. <laughs> so she went and asked the coach. They had forgotten to call her event. <laughs> so they said, oh, wait, wait, we've got to do the last event. It's the triple jump for the girls. Okay. So they got, you know, the six or eight girls that are going to do this triple jump, and you get three tries. So, you know, they're all warming up and doing their thing, and then it's Teresa's turn. And she gets ready, she lines up, and then she, she runs, and she runs, and she does her hop, skip, and a jump, or whatever it is. It takes about three seconds. And, <laughs> okay, <laughs> got that done. And then they run through the second... Uh, trial and that takes about four seconds and then she does the third trial and you know that takes another four seconds so the grand total time of her <laughs> uh, participation or competition was you know a little less than a minute and we sat on these bleaches about three and a half hours it was a lesson in <laughs> how to pay attention, how to be present, how to really sustain your interest, how to manifest your thought. You think you're interested, and then you meet conditions. <laughs> Hello, welcome to the real world. Well, I learned the value of persevering, of course, because Therese was keeping a close eye on us, making sure that we were paying attention. Certainly had to let go of my expectations, because uh, I didn't expect that at all. I finally had to give up my judgment of the officials and my blaming of them. And uh, what I found after a couple hours was that there's actually quite a lot going on that you can enjoy. You know, there's all kinds of other events and sideshows and people doing all sorts of things. Even if you're not, uh, the what you came for isn't happening. Practice is a lot like that. <laughs> you got you to show up. You got to be interested. You got to pay attention, even if nothing's happening. <laughs> and it's helpful to let go of your expectations and it's really instructive to pay attention to the sideshow because that's where everything's happening <laughs> so tonight I want to talk about how we can try to find this place of right effort right energy right attitude really to our practice and I want to put it in the context of the five spiritual or controlling faculties that I spoke about last week sometime. And the five controlling faculties, as you remember, are confidence, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. When we have some degree of confidence, when we feel some degree of uh, assurance, trust, devotion, uh, confidence. We are willing to make the effort. As we make the effort, we become more mindful. As we undertake Dharma practices or mindfulness practices of any sort, we become more mindful. 
the continuity of that mindful awareness deepens concentration. It collects the mind. It calms the mind. It focuses the mind on the present moment. As the mind gets concentrated, collected, calmed, focused, we see more of what's happening. We see more details in this moment. We have an expansive vision. We have more understanding, really, of what's going on. This understanding is the development of wisdom. The more we know about practice, the more we know about ourself in practice, the more we know about our strengths and limitations in practice, the more confidence we can have. Understanding is the support for increased confidence, trust, faith, devotion to practice. And this development of these five qualities of mind, or these five factors of mind, gradually and incrementally support each other and increase throughout our days and years of practice. So I spoke about confidence, trust, faith uh, earlier, and tonight I want to speak about energy or effort. There are five elements to right effort. Confidence is one, of course. Without it, we don't, we don't begin. But confidence alone is not enough. We also must be reasonably healthy in order to undertake practice. Health is a second factor. The sincerity of our practice is a third. Confidence, health, sincerity, energy, and understanding or wisdom. These are the five elements of right effort, and I want to speak about each of them a little bit. The interesting thing about confidence, the first element, is Confidence is not based on, is not dependent on what you actually know from the books. It's not based on intellectual knowledge. You can know everything in the books and have no confidence or faith to practice. Or, on the other hand, you can have no understanding of the books and have a lot of confidence, a lot of trust in yourself or the, pra- or the path of practice. And that was my experience. I mentioned that after one retreat, I went to the Meditation Center in Massachusetts, and I went on staff. And I'd only done one two-week retreat. And in one of the first days of my uh, tenure, on staff at the retreat center, I was up in the attic insulating uh, the ceilings of the the dormitory rooms with uh, another person on staff, Rodney Smith, who's now also teaching in Seattle. And we were having a discussion about the Dharma and uh, our practice and Nibbana, of all topics. And I said to him, out of my enthusiasm and naivety, I said, I have absolutely no doubt in this lifetime I will realize profoundly the Dharma. I also had no idea what I was saying. (laughs) But I had that level of confidence. I had that level of enthusiasm and trust and just self-assurance which was not confronted by reality yet. (laughs) And so, when I suggested to Kamala that I give this talk tonight on right effort, she said, be sure to mention where you're coming from. 
Because sometimes, and it would be easy for me to give a talk on right effort wrongly, to, to really emphasize the striving, the playing the edge, pushing the edge, um, going over the edge, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and that kind of effort. And that's only part of the story. There are times we'll all do that. The hard part for me is talking about the soft edge, the edge of balance, the edge of recognizing when you're pushing too hard and backing up, softening, letting the wisdom unfold that tells you it's time to back up. I have, I have had a very hard time learning that lesson. So, true confidence comes, though, with self-knowledge. When we truly know for ourselves, from our own experience, the nature of pain and how to deal with it, the nature of any of the hindrances, sleepiness, restlessness, and how to deal with it. This gives us a lot of confidence. When you can be with discomfort, when you can be with your hindrances for a period of time, it gives you a lot of self-confidence. It gives you a lot of self-knowledge that you can do it. You can be with this. And that kind of knowledge you, you don't get in a book. No, no, but no teacher can tell you that. We can inspire you, inform you, and entertain you, and try to get you to see that for yourself. But only by living through that experience will you know. But once you have lived through that experience, nobody can take that knowledge away. Nobody can tell you otherwise what you already know. Doubts about ourselves, about practice, are not resolved by thinking or speculating, but only by practice. My teacher Upandita used to say, when I would, at the end of my report, I would ask him if I could ask a question, and he would say, if I let you ask this question and I answer it, you will have two questions for every answer I give you. <laughs> But, he said, if you continue to practice, your practice will answer all your questions. If you can just be patient with the question. A lot of our doubt or lack of confidence um, is manifested as questions. When if we just practiced just extended our practice a little more, the answer would come. Okay. Confidence is the foundation, the support, the cause for the willingness to make the effort. What effort is required? Some of you have just come to the retreat in midpoint, and the first flavor of effort is really uh, just getting here, getting your whole body, your whole mind here, and kind of recovering from the, um, the deficiency of sleep, of energy, of, of uh, interest. It's just getting ourselves back to uh, a reasonable normal. Many of you come from traveling, from work, from stressful lives, and uh, it takes quite a lot of rest, actually, for the first few days to, to, to be ready to practice. But then there is a necessary adjustment. Once you've recovered some, some, some rest, there's an adjustment when you actually begin practice, uh, I was going to say seriously, uh, I mean continuously. 
when you arouse the intention to move towards fulfilling your aspiration by sustaining your energy, sustaining your attention. And that's really the, the effort of continuity, of just, just being there, just following the schedule, getting up with the bells, following the schedule, going through the motions, being willing to do that, fit the schedule. Most of you who have been interviewing with me have noticed that I ask you, uh, how's, your, uh, how's your sleeping situation? You sleeping okay? And your yogi job, is that okay? Not, not too stressful? And uh, is the food okay for you? And the weather? And why do I ask that? It's not, it's not just to make conversation. It's because those are the conditions that will allow you to have good health. If you can sleep well, if you can get something to eat, and if the weather's suitable. And if you're healthy, if you are, are, you know, come with reasonably good health or whatever level of health you have, these conditions support it. Because if we're not well healthy, if we're not well physically, if we're really sick, we don't have any energy for practice, or very little. A woman who used to um, practice with with us several years ago wrote me a letter one time where she told me that uh, she was at work uh, one day and uh, she felt like uh, she had a touch of the cold coming on or flu or something a- and she she got in her car to drive home and she said she got home and she started she, she got violently sick and then she related to me this uh, harrowing account of what happened to her over the next uh, two or three weeks, where she went and got, it, got this terrific fever and uh, uh, had this uh, the, the most painful body, uh, nausea and uh, aches and pains in her body, and, and uh, her body swelled up and she couldn't, it, it was just unbelievable. She had things in all her, uh, all her limbs were plugged in and taking things out and putting things in and the as she called it, the, the blood take people came and jabbed her to take their blood every so often, and it hurt like the devil. And uh, she was in such misery, she said all she wanted to do was die. She, just, she was just hoping that she would die because it was so painful, so, so miserable, and, and her mind was really driving her crazy too. After a couple of weeks, you know, the fever came down, and uh, she got stabilized to some degree. And then she had her first coherent thought. And what did she think of? She thought of yogis practicing on retreat. And she said that's what inspired her to really um, kind of come out of it. And, to, and, and she realized then how valuable her practice had been up to that point. And she ended her letter by saying, whenever you're on retreat, tell those yogis, just practice, practice, practice. That's the most important thing because you never know when your health is going to go. What most surprised her was that when she was sick, when she was really uh, not well, she didn't think about practice. She didn't care about practice. She didn't know anything about practice. All she wanted to do was die. But as soon as she got a little bit well, that was the first thing she thought of, was doing doing her practice, doing more practice, encouraging others. I've spoken about urgency in our practice what moves us to be here at this retreat now? What moves us to make the efforts that we do? Why is it so important that now we're here practicing? What makes it urgent in your life? Sometimes we have lofty uh, urges, you know, want to get in line. Maybe we have a life-threatening disease. Maybe, uh, maybe there's been a death in our family that's really 
shaken us, shook, shaken us up. Uh, maybe we've been re- tremendously inspired by uh, uh, some a Dharma teacher or whatever. We just have a lot of urgency. Sometimes our urgency, that that which brings urgency, is really quite mundane, ordinary. Once I was practicing in Thailand, in the forest, in the jungle there, and uh, at this particular monastery we went for alms round at 6.30 in the morning and we got uh, food from this one village that raised tapioca. And uh, mostly what we got in, in, in our alms bowl was tapioca and sticky rice. And that, that's about it. And you know, there was some ground up meat with some herbs in it some days. And uh, that was it, every day. And uh, it wasn't really very nourishing, but uh, it was heavy. And so when you would eat at 8 o'clock, I would eat quite a lot, because by 8.30, that was it, till 8 o'clock the next day. And so I'd eat a lot of food. And um, when you eat a lot of sticky rice, it feels like a bowling ball in your belly, and you better not sit down or lay down for several hours. <laughs> so I would stand up. And I would stand up in the shade of my cootie, which was up on stilts. You know, the, it's in the jungle, you put things up on stilts so that the creepy crawlies don't come to bed with you. So I was standing in the shade, because the sun was up, it was hot, standing in the shade. But the flies congregate in the shade. And so the monk's robes, uh, come down to about your knee, a little below your knee, and there's your bare legs and feet for the flies to play with. So I would keep a little tea towel um, in my hand, and I'd be standing, <laughs> standing, standing, and then I'd feel this itchy crawl, flies crawling on my legs and feet, and I would flick it like a horsetail, just flick, flick, you know, and they would fly up and fly off for a minute. Oh, standing, standing, flick, flick. <laughs> standing, standing. You know, and I would stand this way for two or three hours just till I got my meal digested. <laughs> I could, you know, get a little more comfortable without falling asleep. And one day I was standing there and I felt something on my foot and uh, it didn't feel like a fly. <laughs> and so I opened my eyes and there was, you know, you know, it's like after you eat a big meal, you just kind of, you're kind of dull and you're kind of lethargic and you're just barely staying mindful, right? And there was this snake going across my foot, and it was a big snake, like three, four. Let me watch my musawara. It was three or four feet. It was big, you know. And I didn't have any problem with my urgency to practice. <laughs> I felt a great spiritual urgency to be awake. <laughs> because when I moved quickly, the snake took off, and it didn't go into the jungle. It went to the nearest tree and went up the tree. Now I realized that the posts holding up my cabin were totally ineffective. <laughs> if a snake can climb a tree, it can climb the post that my sleeping platform was on. <laughs> Sometimes our spiritual urgency comes in the most uh, mundane ways. <laughs> but staying healthy, having good health, a condition for making right effort. Third quality of right effort is sincerity. And it's important to consider what sincerity means because all of us are here. We've made a lot of efforts to get here, to be here. There's a certain sincerity in our wanting to be here, coming here. And yet, I'm sure you've discovered those times in your day when your practice is more casual than sincere, more just getting by 
than really uh, making uh, determined effort. Sincerity has or refers to walking your talk. You know, we want to be, we want to practice. We want to be awakened. We want to be good yogis. We we want, you know, we want to be diligent. We want to be worthy of the teachings. We want to be worthy of the efforts that everyone's making. And yet it's difficult to sustain that sincerity. And sincerity really involves commitment. In the first retreat that we had, the first month-long retreat we had here, there was a woman who was in the middle of the retreat celebrating her 20th anniversary of uh, being an AA. And um, 20 years of uh, going to AA meetings uh, every day, often two or three a day. And uh, I said to her, wow, that's uh, quite a commitment you have to... um, to, you know, taking care of yourself and really getting a handle on this condition you have. She said, yes. I said, um, it must get easier as you uh, um, go on. She said, no. Every day, it's a, it's a decision. It's a recommitment every day to that decision made then, 20 years before. And that's really how commitments are made moment by moment. We don't make a commitment once and then say, oh, there, that's it. Yeah, I've made a commitment to this practice. I've made a commitment to this relationship. I've made a commitment to this uh, behavior or refraining from this behavior. And then it happens automatically. It doesn't work that way. Sustaining a commitment means reconfirming that decision, reconfirming that intention moment after moment after moment after moment. And yet it does, and it does build up a certain momentum, a certain quality of uh, repetition and habit, and of course that provides a lot of support, of course. I mention it because it's important for us in practice to notice the times when our practice is less and sincere. You know how easy it is to, to, to start a bad habit? If you can get through the first time, all of the fear and the shame and the humiliation of doing it the first time, the second time comes easy. And so too with unskillful practice habits. If we allow ourselves to really hang out with unskillful practice habits, doing you know casual practice, uh, insincere, just kind of you know, um, and we know we feel it, we we feel it, then it sets up a permission and uh, the beginnings of a habit, which the more frequently we engage, the less likely we are to see it. And so we want, to, we want to see it. We want to see those times in our practice when we are less than sincere. So that we can catch, we can catch that, that um, kind of practice and put it aside. takes a lot of willingness to stay in this practice. And I often ask you when you, when you, when you come to um, report on difficult uh, experiences, if you're willing to look at it, are you willing to open to it? Are you willing to be present with it? Are you willing to acknowledge it? Are you willing to feel it? Practice is about being willing, at least willing. It's not overcoming, it's not defeating, it's not uprooting, it's not getting rid of. It's, are you willing 
to put aside your fear, your inertia, your judgments of yourself, and to feel it, to open to it, to check it out. Sincerity is really the quality of our intention and the continuity of our action. It's the only way that sincerity gets any uh, grounding, really, is following through with our intention. Confidence, health, sincerity. The fourth element of right effort is energy. I will do that. The fourth element of right effort is energy. And it's kind of paradoxical in this practice that we come and a lot of the instruction is to not do. We practice doing nothing mindfully with awareness. And that takes, as somebody said, it takes a lot of energy not to do anything other than pay attention. And so what what kind of energy are we talking about when we talk about energy for right effort? I talked about the energy of just settling in, overcoming your inertia, exhaustion, tiredness. I talked about the energy of sustaining your intention and attention on your primary objects, sustaining your uh, willingness to just follow the schedule. Another kind or another quality or another quantum leap really in energy comes when we meet difficulty, when we meet dukkha. And here we have two kinds of energy that we want to acknowledge. And one is the energy of persevering. Being willing to play the edge of what we can tolerate. What we can tolerate for fear, for pain, for sleepiness, for any of the hindrances, for insecurity. And we play that edge. Playing the edge is the way that we expand our capacity. Christopher Titmus, one of my early teachers and another teacher of the Dharma, he said, one of his teachers used, uh, used to draw a line in the sand in Thailand and say, practice is all about coming to your edge and taking one step over the line. It's not taking you know, a radical leap beyond your capacity into the unknown. It's just taking a single step beyond what you believe to be your limit, your edge, as far as you can go. One way to do that in, <clears throat> in uh, working with pain, for example, is when you meet pain, overwhelming pain, <clears throat> excuse me, to ask yourself, if this pain doesn't get any worse, can I be with it? And often, if we can somehow believe that the pain doesn't get any worse, we can be with it. Much of our difficulty or resistance in dealing with pain is the thought or the belief it's only going to get worse. And that defeats us before we actually meet our limit of what we can tolerate and what we're willing to open to. Another way of dealing with pain or intense uh, demanding emotion is to ask yourself, can I be with this discomfort for another five seconds? 
Give yourself permission to move. Give yourself permission to open your eyes, whatever it is you got to do, and then say, can I be with it for five more seconds? And often, just that placing the limit on what we have to tolerate allows us to relax, open, and be at ease, really, with what up until then was unbearable. And so we use these little tricks of the mind to, we trick the mind into extending itself into the unknown, incrementally increasing our capacity, just bit by bit. And over the course of a day, a week, a month, years of practice, we grow in capacity. We grow in our ability to tolerate, our ability to play the edge, and the edge changes, moves. Early on in my practice, I heard about this monk, <coughs> the one from Thailand that I, I mean, from Burma that I mentioned, who, you know, the one who was in the cave for 33, 30, 34 years, whatever, 33 years. Not only was he in the cave, he didn't lay down for 50 years. He sat up, you know, sat up doing his practice. At night when he wanted to sleep, he sat up. So I thought, hey, that's a good practice. I'll try that. <laughs> Where did I get this idea? So I remember one night I said, uh, doing a retreat at uh, the Meditation Center in Massachusetts, I said, I'm going to sit up tonight, all night. I'm not going to lay down when I go to bed. <laughs> this was a little bit too much of a leap for me. It was so excruciatingly painful. After a, 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 an hour or two, I laid down. I said, forget it. That's, an, that's the end of my commitment. <laughs> I'm out of here. I'm getting some sleep. When we bite off more than we can chew, we choke. <laughs> right? Okay. Later, after years of practicing in Burma, I went to um, Malaysia and I was practicing in a monastery there. And, and uh, I decided again that it might be interesting to experiment with not laying down, just to see what happens. I w I'd been told it was pretty easy, actually. Once you, get, once you get past the first night or two, then you learn how to sleep sitting up and it's really no problem. So, <laughs> I was more mature, both in my practice and my understanding and my, my um, ambition, I guess. And uh, it's actually not so difficult to, you know, when you're, when you're practicing and to just be relaxed and when you get tired, you just collapse a little bit. And you'll fall asleep and you wake up. When you wake up, you're already practicing. <laughs> right? And you don't waste time. <laughs> there are degrees of... Uh, you know, the Buddha talked about his teaching being the middle path. You know, between the extremes of uh, indulgence in sensual pleasure and the extreme of mortification of the flesh. So in between those two is happy comfort of mind and body, right? Uh, except that the Buddha did allow some of these what are called Dutanga practices. Dutanga practices are, I think there's 11 or 13 practices that he would allow the monks to undertake. And one of them was sitting up. One of them's eating only one meal a day and, and a few other things. But one of them was sitting up. But there's even with that, there are degrees of sitting up. There are those who are allowed to use a back support and those who don't. So depending on where you are in practice, there's always an edge to play. 
there's always an edge no matter no matter uh, where you are you can take you can come to your edge and take one step one one a little bit more many of you Kamala mentioned to me today and to me also I've been reporting that uh, you're waking up before the wake-up bell the wake-up bell is at five o'clock and people are waking up you know 4 30 4 o'clock 3 30 3 o'clock and so I ask you when you wake up and you have enough sleep is it possible to extend yourself and start practice then is it possible we have belief about how much sleep we need you know and and in our everyday life when we work in social life and uh, and whatnot yeah we may need seven hours eight hours nine hours whatever you know whatever it is you seen you need in order to be uh, efficient and effective during the day but in practice in intensive practice everything is changing how much you eat changes how much uh, sleep you need changes how much energy you have changes be willing to explore enter it with ent- enter the practice enter this expansion of your practice with kind of curiosity not with a demand like my foolish attempt to sit up uh, too early in practice but explore your 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 the possibility explore the fear you have explore the the resistance that comes the the belief you have about yourself being able or not able to do it and then see what you can do see what you can do okay so now I've been talking about effort and energy and extending yourself a little bit are you evaluating yourself now are you evaluating are you measuring and comparing and determining how much effort you made are you judging yourself right effort has nothing to do with judging yourself we do we do we measure ourselves we compare ourselves we hear these stories and we say oh my god I'm I'm never gonna make it right effort is about finding our own balance I'm talking about finding your edge and taking one step beyond that. And if it's too far, if it's too big a step, you'll know. Because then you'll meet judgment and fear and exhaustion and and a loss of confidence. Playing the edge can build confidence, a lot of confidence, while expanding capacity. In the um, in the center where I was practicing in Burma, they have a general uh, guidance for yogis, and it's um, and Upandita would tell us when you practice, act like a deaf, dumb, blind, sick person. Blind, don't look around. Deaf, don't listen around. Dumb, don't talk around. And ill, slow down. Why do we do that? Why do we limit our, um, you know, engagement with the world to conserve energy, to preserve energy? When we look around, we listen around, we're moving around fast. Uh, it, not always, 
but it can be very unmindful. And it's all a dissipation of energy. That's the energy that we need, really, to conserve in order to build up the heat necessary to cook our practice. To break through, to, to, to extend ourselves beyond our current limits. We do teach, as you know, walking practice, standing practice, sitting practice, which involves listening, seeing, uh, and even walking fast. So it's not universally that you can't do that. When you do it, of course, you do it with mindfulness. But when we do it unmindfully, then it's a leak in our energy. It dissipates our energy. Maybe the most necessary or useful understanding for finding your own place of right effort, balance in your effort, is to talk about uh, consistency. Finding your pace, finding your rhythm, and keeping with it. Just keeping with it. Just slow, just incrementally uh, expanding. Not making huge leaps and bounds, but being consistent. There's a little trouble with the ovens here at, uh, at this retreat center. And <clears throat> when you set the oven for 350, it sometimes hovers around 350, it sometimes hovers around 315. And uh, you never know. You know, it's kind of... It's kind of a, well, if the recipe calls for 350 for 45 minutes, it means 350 for 45 minutes. You can't turn it up to 500 and hope to get done in a half hour, and neither can you leave it at 200 and hope to get done in two hours. It requires 350 for 45 minutes. <clears throat> Practices like that. Find your pace. Find your energy level. Work with it. Be consistent. Challenge yourself, for sure. Much more productive than, you know, huge effort and a huge collapse following it. If we overextend ourselves one day, we'll be severely depleted for the next two. There's a story of a very enthusiastic uh, novice come to the temple or come to the monastery and uh, went to the abbot and said, I want to get enlightened. And uh, <clears throat> the abbot had some wisdom. He said, oh, really? Yeah. He says, yeah, I really want to get enlightened. I want to do as fast as I can. How long is it going to take? And the abbot said, oh, it's going to take you 10 years. And he said, 10 years, oh my God. He said, what if I work uh, double time, day and night, work really hard, strive harder? The abbot says, 20 years. <laughs> he says, well, what if, I, what if I don't stop, just day and night, stay up all the time, practice really diligently, make every effort? 30 years. And the novice says, well, how come you say that? The more effort I make like that, the longer it's going to take. And <clears throat> the abbot said, well, if you keep one eye on the goal, you've only got one eye to find the path. So, the path is the step before you. The next step that you must take is the path. Where you're going, where you hope to get, that's the goal. Forget it. Find where you are right now. How much energy do you need to take the next step? We've been sitting here listening to a talk for nearly an hour. I'm going to ask you to become mindfully aware of your body. Feel your body sitting right now. Sitting on the cushion. 
or bench or chair. You feel what that feels like? How much effort did that take? Right? How much effort did it take to be mindful right in that moment? Or right in this moment? Almost nothing. That's how much effort and energy is required in each moment of practice. Almost nothing. But what makes that amount of energy so valuable and so extraordinary is the precision with which we apply it. Okay? You can have a lot of energy scattered all over the place and not be mindful at all. You just overshoot the mark all the time. Hypervigilant, we call it. You can be really amped up. And you never land in the present moment. Because the energy is excessive and the application is imprecise. It's in the precision of your aiming, your attention, that you actually land on the present moment. And for that, very little energy is required. My father used to work on um, microwave towers, you know, those towers that send radio beams across great distances and carry lots of phone messages. And, you know, they've got these great big towers, these great big receiving things and all kinds of heavy-duty equipment in there. And he, he asked me one time, he says, do you know how much energy goes between one of those stations and the other one? And I could only imagine this huge nuclear reactor amount of energy zapping out from one tower to the other. And he said, no. It's some fraction of a watt. It's just almost nothing. But the precision with which they're aimed and carry the, carry the energy or whatever it is that they're carrying is what makes them so powerful, so unique, so valuable. The same with our mindfulness. The quality of our attention, where we're directing our attention, the precision with which we're directing it into the present moment makes all the difference in the world as to how awake we are. Finding our own way, finding what is the place of balance in the middle for us, not easy and it's ever-changing. What worked today might not work tomorrow. It requires that precise attention in the moment to know what is appropriate for me now and being willing to meet the need whatever's needed be willing to raise that amount of energy and open to the experience <clears throat> I want to end with a short story a short Zen story One of the devotees in the temple was well known for his zealousness and his effort. Day and night he would sit in meditation, not stopping even to eat or sleep. As time passed, he grew thinner and more exhausted. The master of the temple advised him to slow down, to take more care of himself. But the devotee refused to heed his advice. Why are you rushing so? What is your hurry? asked the master. 
I'm after enlightenment, replied the devotee. There is no time to waste. And how do you know that? Asked the master. That enlightenment is running on before you so that you have to rush after it. Perhaps it is behind you and all you need to encounter it is to stand still. <laughs> but you are running away from it. <laughs> so let us sit still for a minute and maybe it will catch up with us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.